if we're the household, like you said, that is saying no, 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 eventually our kids are going to move out. And that will be the first time in their lives that they get to say yes to things that previously they were being said no to. And if they have already built up skills of, oh yeah, I already know, like I can play video games when I want. And I already know that I can play them, but I also probably have to study for my midterm. Then yeah, will they stretch those boundaries? Yeah, they probably will. Because most young adults tend to do that and tend to learn those lessons, we hope. But they're playing around and pushing the boundaries they already know, as opposed to going from complete abstinence to a sudden lack of boundaries. Hey, Parenting Beyond Discipline listeners, ready to create a home that fosters love, warmth, and style? Look no further than Home Threads, your partner in crafting a nurturing environment. At HomeThreads.com, explore a thoughtfully curated collection of furniture designed for families who believe in positive parenting. From cozy reading nooks to durable playroom essentials, our pieces are crafted to enhance your parenting journey. Home Threads has an incredible selection of furniture, decor, and accessories like throw pillows, blankets to snuggle under for family movie nights or reading time that helps you create the warm, cozy home that is the foundation for happy family memories. I love all the great pieces I've gotten from Home Threads to finish the look in my home. Gorgeous yet durable and cozy accent throw pillows, blankets, and some really cute wall decor. I have an ocean theme throughout my downstairs, so I got a couple of really great wall pieces to finish that look. And some picture frames for the family photos. Visit homethreads.com parenting today and get a code for 15% off your order. That's homethreads.com parenting to get your code for 15% off your order because great parenting deserves a great home. Home Threads, love where you live. Welcome to the Your Village podcast, Parenting Beyond Discipline. Your Village is the most comprehensive site for evidence-based parenting classes available on demand at yourvillageonline.com. Our 50 plus classes give parents the foundation, steps, and tools for creating strong, healthy relationships with their children, resulting in responsible, cooperative, happy, and successful children and families. My goal is to help parents support their children in finding and reaching their own unique potential. The podcast is a place to learn about all things parenting and get your questions answered. I'm your village founder and your host, Erin Royer. Ash Brandon earned their EDS and has been a public school educator for over a decade. In that time, they found innovative ways of using student interests, including video games, to increase engagement and make learning more fun and effective. Since February 2021, their Instagram page, The Gamer Educator, has helped tens of thousands of families make screen time beneficial for their whole family. Ash believes screens should be part of our lives not the center of our lives, and helps caregivers navigate the world of tech using consistent, loving boundaries. In their free time, Ash loves to hike, bake, play video games, and spend time with their family. So welcome, Ash. I'm so excited to have you here. I love your content on Instagram. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. So we're going to dive into some questions today. The first I wanted to ask you, so we hear so much about the negative effects of screen time. And especially with COVID, I know we definitely saw a big increase. We did in our family. And so now I think a lot of us parents were trying to pull back on that a little bit and trying to allow more time for other things and have found that a little bit of a difficult transition. 
So I would love for you to share the positive ways we can use screen time and gaming both at home and as an educator and how you use it in the classroom. Yeah, absolutely. So I got into this kind of space and work through my classroom experience as an educator. What's funny is I actually was not advocating for necessarily the literal use of video games in the classroom. Um, because I knew that was going to be kind of a hard sell on many friends. It's it's like practically difficult, uh, you know, having access to that technology and understanding how to use it. That's like a big practical hurdle for a lot of teachers. And I knew that for a lot of families and parents, they might not really understand how that's like a meaningful thing to do in a classroom. So when I originally started doing this work, it was really at not necessarily using games themselves, but using the structures that they have. And so it really forced me to look at what is it that video games do so well? And a lot of what they do well is motivating kids. When we see a child who is really dead set on doing well in a video game, and they're going to try something over and over and over again in a video game, we might look at that. And sometimes I think we have this instinct that says, oh, that's bad. They must be addicted. There must be something wrong. That's that's all they want to do. But if that same child show that same amount of focus for perfecting their soccer kicks or for knitting or for playing the cello, we would say, oh, isn't that so great? They just love it. They just love to get better at it. And really psychologically, what's going on is the same thing. They're intrinsically motivated. And video games are very good at creating that feeling of intrinsic motivation. So I really focused on, okay, let's focus on how that happens in a game. And then how can we weave in that same kind of structure into what I teach so that kids are feeling that same kind of motivation for what we're learning in a classroom that they might feel when they go home and play video games. So it's funny that I kind of started from honestly a pretty analog application of these things. I wasn't necessarily like dragging an Xbox into my classroom. And now here I am, and I'm really helping families manage much more the digital side of things. And I completely empathize if families are feeling like maybe they want to pull back a bit after the last few years. I think many families are feeling that way. And that's a completely valid way to feel. You know, it's all about finding the balance that works that works for you, whether that's a lot or a little, or it changes sometimes. I love the way you approach that problem of what is it about these games that's drawing kids in, what's grabbing their interest, holding their interest. So how have you been able to apply that in the classroom to create some more internal motivation? Yeah, so most things that are intrinsically motivating are intrinsically motivated because of one of three major psychological factors. This is not me. This is an established theory for about 40 years from some researchers named Desi and Ryan. And they have something called self-determination theory. And what they say is that if something makes you feel autonomy, competence, or relatedness, that is going to engender a feeling of intrinsic motivation. So these three factors of intrinsic motivation, this autonomy, competence, and relatedness, and they are pretty much what they sound like. You know, something that gives you a sense of autonomy, it's really about feeling control. It's not necessarily feeling like power, it can be, or independence, but it's really about control, having a say in something. And if we think about typical education models, there's a lot of autonomy that is missing from those models. Kids are told what to do, where to go, where to sit, where to write, now do this, now do that, now do the other thing. For most of their educational lives, they don't really have that much autonomy over what they do or what they create. I think as adults, we often feel like 
kids do. Like we feel like our lives revolve around our kids, <laughs> which is true. But from the kid perspective, you know, they're kind of being told, like they're being pretty micromanaged through a lot of their lives. A lot. When to get up, when to go. Yes. Don't wear that. Yes. <laughs> and if we think about it from the kid perspective, we might feel like we're giving them a sense of control um, of like, get dressed, you know, well, they get to choose what they wear, right? But they don't get to choose maybe what clothes are in their closet or when they're getting up and like that there's not a whole lot of control they have in their lives. And so video games often give a real sense of control. But what I love about the sense of autonomy that video games give is that, and I think this is such a great thing to pull from in education, is that the autonomy that video games give is actually extremely structured. We don't, I think as adults, we look at video games and think, oh yeah, they love them because kids can do whatever they want. Yeah, but actually kids can only do what they want within a very set, finite structure of rules. Video games are rule machines. You know, levels have physical boundaries. They have, they have coded boundaries. They have, you know, when you press the A button, you're always going to jump, right? That's going to happen every time. And there is predictability to how that gameplay unfolds. And that is actually very comforting to the player because I know, I know every time I press this button that this thing is going to happen. And that gives me a sense of, of freedom uh, to explore within the rules that are set. And if I go to the edge of the level and I'm trying to, to go somewhere that I'm not allowed to go, the game doesn't yell at me. It doesn't punish me. It doesn't say, what are you doing? How many times do I have to tell you you're not allowed to go over there, right? It doesn't get emotional. It just doesn't let you, right? Or the wall that's the door that says 150 coins stays there. And that kind of neutrality, I think, gives that sense of control because within those rules, we can kind of do whatever we want. And so that was something I really tried to pull from of like, how do I set parameters for a project or a lesson or an assignment or, or group work, but then really relinquish a sense of control within it? You know, I'm, I'm going to lay out the extremes. I'm going to lay out the rules, but then I'm also going to give them freedom to do things within those rules, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so that is a huge part. And then, you know, competence, this feeling of success, this feeling of, oh my gosh, I did it. I did the thing. A big part of what makes that so successful in video games is that the feeling of failure is relatively small compared with the size of the success. So if I am trying to, you know, if I'm trying to beat a level in a game and I run out of lives and I die, well, I can start over again, right? I, I go back to my last save point and I try again. And there's n there's not necessarily a huge emotional like waste necessarily of my time because I know I can come back and try again. And so I tried to also do that with the tasks I was asking the students to do, of thinking about ways that I can, you know, give them a way of practicing skills in small ways before this, you know, the daunting sort of boss fight of like a final exam. You know, video games give us so many ways of practicing the skill in small ways before something really huge and big stakes happen. So that by the time we get there, we feel adequately prepared. And so in education, I thought, okay, I can do the same thing. How do I make sure that they've had lots of opportunities to practice in low stakes ways so that by the time they get to something high stakes, they already know, oh yeah, I can do this. I can have lots of ways of doing this. And the last one is relatedness. That looks so different depending on what you're playing. You know, sometimes it's really social. It's like talking to people while you play. Sometimes it's 
very casual and like kind of parallel playing with other people. And that can be a little bit harder because I, I work in middle school and like arguably to me, middle school is all about just trying to get kids to be able to relate to other people in appropriate ways, whether or not they want to <laughs> and teaching those social skills. I have three middle schoolers. All of my kids are in middle school right now. So I have two sixth graders and an eighth grader. So yeah. Oh, so I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Right. So sometimes it's forcing some socialization. Sometimes it's pulling back on socialization. And, um, and again, I think video games are really good at giving us different ways of doing that. You know, sometimes I'm socializing like in a parallel way, like, oh, you like this game. I like this game. Sometimes it's very like literal. We're helping. We're collaborative. We're working together on the same thing. Sometimes it's competitive, right? I'm, I'm relating to somebody else by competing against them. Like I can't be the best unless I'm the best in relation to somebody else. Otherwise I'm not the best. I'm just myself. So there's so many ways to play on those things. And when I, just looked at, okay, what are the ways that games do this? Suddenly it was like, oh, I can do that. You know, I could, I could turn this into a competition or I could turn this into something kids are doing in parallel with somebody else. Or, you know, I could give kids five different options instead of saying you have to write an essay um, and let them decide what they're going to come up with. I could give them a bunch of little ways of showing me this skill before it has to be a big deal. Um, and really found that well, wouldn't you know it when, when those things are happening, that it gives kids more kind of buy-in and ways to connect with what you're doing. Amazing. So let's bring this home. Um, so let's talk about how to do this in the home. So what are some guidelines and boundaries, both in like age and time, if, if there are any in particular that you would recommend for introducing games at home or regulating games at home? There used to be like an actual really objective guidelines through the AAP. Right. And then they what they changed those about two years ago. And I actually really like that they changed them because mm-hmm. they weren't necessarily based on anything. It used it used to be, you know, before this age it should be zero minutes and then it should be zero to an hour and then one to two hours. But that wasn't that was all pretty arbitrary. It it was not based on a body of research. It was just kind of chosen. And I I personally do like when the emphasis is more on Uh, the kind of quality of the screen use. And I mean that in kind of big quotes, because I'm not trying to say that some screens are good and some screens are bad, but more like the quality of its use in your, in your family and like the purpose it's serving. And what I always say is, you know, is this acting as a benefit to a whole family? And right now the AAP's recommendation is instead that families make what they call a family media plan. And they have, you know, they have like a, print out that families can fill out to to do this. And it often includes things like when is screen time going to be and where and what, and like specifically what is the content going to be. And I like that because it, it allows families to have some flexibility on what's going to work for them. It's not going to look the same for every family and focus more instead on the role that it's serving. One of the boundaries that I really stick to is trying to make screen time predictable and part of a routine because when things are routine, they become routine and they become less special feeling. Uh, and if kids have what we would call like a scarce relationship with, with screens, meaning they don't know when it's going to happen next, or they are unsure of the, of their relationship to screens that can sometimes lead to a preoccupation with them. Yeah. That's like the intermittent, um, what do they call it? 
um, schedules of, of like rewards basically. And when it's intermittent, Mm -hmm. it actually makes it, it's like slot machines, right? You don't know when you're going to win. So it becomes more addictive. And actually what's so funny is that a lot of people say, oh, video games are addictive. And I said, no, gambling is addictive. Uh, because there are some video games that have really predatory psychological structures and they do essentially what you're saying. They do this intermittent, like maybe this time you'll get this, uh, this reward, maybe this time you'll get this other thing. And wouldn't you know it, that incentivizes people to log in more and spend more money, which is what some companies want. But if we look at a game where I have to pay $60 for a Mario game, they, they can't then make you in be in a gambling loop because you'd never pay $60 for a game again. They have to make a game feel super fulfilling upfront because you already, they already have your money. They have to prove to you that it was worth spending $60. And when the next one comes out, you should spend $60 more. So they use really structured, predictable relationships of, of, you know, gaming behaviors to whatever you're getting in the game. Like I was mentioning earlier, like I press the A button and I jump. That sounds silly. That's not really a reward structure, but it is predictable. And if we look at some other kinds of games, sometimes they have a really unpredictable structure like, oh, well, you'll get something every day you log in. Okay, well, I log in on Monday and I got 100 coins and I log in the next day and I get 10. And then, of course, I think, well, why did I get 10? I better log in tomorrow. Maybe I'll get 100. And so that it's funny that what we fear about gaming itself is not necessarily as common as we might think. It is there. It's important to know about. But it also ends up being a relationship that we sometimes perpetuate because of the fear we hold around video games themselves. That's a really important point. And it's something that parents sometimes end up inadvertently perpetuating. You know, they think, oh, fine, you can have the, you can have the iPad because I really, really have to answer this email, but you can only have it for 15 minutes. And then the child is, whether or not consciously thinking this, their brain is going, oh, wow, we're getting this thing. We never get this thing. So it must be a really big deal. And then that 15 minutes is up and the parent is like, okay, I answered my email. I need it back. And then the kid's brain is going, wait, when are we getting this again? Are we getting it again tomorrow? What if you cry? Try crying. See what happens. <laughs> and and then the parent is going, I knew I should never have given you that iPad because now you can't give it back to me. Next time, I'm going to make sure you only get it for five minutes. And then we're actually like, we're making the scarcity worse. Right. We're restricting further. And the kid's brain is going, okay, next time, maybe you should try, you know, yelling. Maybe you should try this. Maybe you should try sneaking it. Um, and it ends up being this power struggle that we're kind of both, both ends are exacerbating it. But like you said, when we have a regular relationship with something and we know when we're going to get it, then it becomes less of a big deal. It doesn't mean we won't still prefer it. I prefer many things to many other parts of my life. That, that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? I prefer when I get to eat than when I am you know, dealing with a whole lot of paperwork. <laughs> uh, but that doesn't mean that I have some sort of unhealthy relationship with lunch compared with other parts of my workday. Yeah. So yeah, the predictability part is huge. And, and it also helps the parent because, you know, when I know this is the part of our day that screens are in, then I, as a parent, am structuring some stuff around that. That might be when I make dinner, it might help be when I'm just taking a break, I'm helping another kid, I'm doing something else, I'm getting some downtime of my own. And that also helps me talk to my kid about what the whole day is going to look like. To me, there is nothing more important than my family's health and well-being. 
We all know the quality of the air in our home is important. But did you know indoor air quality can be up to 100 times dirtier than outdoor air? I've got to tell you about Puro Air. In 30 minutes, this device will remove allergens, dust, smoke, dander, and gases from the room. Puro Air uses a stronger filter called a HEPA-14 that filters pollutants at a microscopic level and is backed by scientists from Harvard and MIT. In laboratory studies, users saw noticeably cleaner air in just 30 minutes. When it comes to babies and children, there's nothing worse than dealing with a cranky baby or child who can't sleep because of congestion. Air purifiers can help reduce congestion and improve immune system function to fight those winter colds and flus. I use my Puro Air purifiers to clean the air in my home, especially in our bedrooms while we sleep. It has a quiet, relaxing hum and cleans the air from pet dander, allergens, viruses, dust, mold, odors, and contaminants. It has four levels, low, medium, high, and sleep and four different timer options so you can customize it to your home and your needs. Check out Puro Air at getpuroair.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. Puro Air is the only air filter that uses a HEPA-14 filter. That's getpuroair.com. Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up at your door in as little as two days. Then when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out for more new-to-you styles. My favorite thing about Armoire is all the different style and occasion options from casual to athleisure to night out, work formal, work casual, a total of eight different occasions, three weather options, and 11 categories, including accessories, outerwear, and blazers, just to name a few. With Armoire, you can always have something new to wear without the hassle and closet clutter. You know the feeling. You open your closet, it's full, but you have quite literally nothing to wear. You're bored with everything in there. Enter Armoire. Armoire allows you to rent high-quality designer clothes for every occasion. Whether you're planning your outfit for date night, packing for a conference, or in need of a gown for a black tie event, you will be the best-dressed person in the room. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off the first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash parenting. That's armoire.style. A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash parenting to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. So I wanted to ask, what do you think is the best way to explain to kids that video games are not age appropriate for them yet? We have this in my house. My older son keeps asking for what is Call of Duty is what he wants to play. And I so far have just said, nope, we're not going to play that. You know, we try to explain the age appropriateness, but um, love to hear your take. My first reaction was that I think age is pretty arbitrary. And, you know, I work in middle school, you have middle schoolers. To me, the, the minute that we give a certain metric as being the thing we're basing a decision on, I, I think it can sometimes invite power struggle. And it's nice to have something objective because then it's like, okay, here's the line in the sand and we'll get there when we get there. But to me, age 
is not necessarily indicative of maturity. Like it can be, but especially as you get into older ages, it isn't necessarily. So if I said to a kid, you aren't old enough to play this yet. Well, what's that child's next question going to be? How old do I have to be? When am I old enough to play it? (laughs) Exactly. And so then that puts you in a hard position because like we can't really get angry at them for asking. You know, if I showed up at a a restaurant and they said, I'm sorry, we're not open yet. Well, I'm probably then going to ask, right? It's a natural response because like I said earlier, we love to know where the boundaries are. Video games give us great boundaries. We love to know where our rules are. We just want to operate within them. And so if I say, well, you're not old enough for that yet, their response is probably going to be, how old do I have to be? And if you already know, like maybe maybe that is the metric you're using. And maybe for whatever reason, 16 is the magic age. Okay, great. Then we know, and then we can go about our lives and tell our kids are 16. Um, but it's interesting you bring up Call of Duty because I actually... I actually have a post coming out tomorrow about kinds of media that I just don't allow for my child. And I have a pretty young kid, but I, and it's about, you know, depictions of guns in media. And in my family, we are just a no, we're like a no on gun related things. And it has nothing to do with a fear of it causing violent behavior that's not supported in the research. It, it's not that kind of fear. It's just that for us, it's just to know. Mm-hmm. Like, and the way I frame it is like, God, for me, certain subjects are very serious and need to be taken very seriously. And I don't like when there are conflicting messages around serious things that need to be treated really seriously in one way, but then somehow are okay to play with in another way. I find that confusing. And I also just, I don't personally enjoy a lot of media, uh, like, like gaming with guns. Like it just, I just don't like it on my own. So when we decide to go with something like age, I think that's fine if that really is the deciding factor. But if it has to do more with maybe just family philosophy or a, a greater conversation around what are the skills that this person needs? before we feel they're ready for this thing. You know, a game like Call of Duty, I mean, that's that could be very complicated depending on what they want to do. So a game like Call of Duty might be they're playing completely alone off the internet. They're playing a story mission. It could be that they're playing with people they know in real life. It could be they're pe- playing online with people they know in real life and they're talking to them at the same time. It could be they're playing online with strangers they don't know. It could be they're playing online with strangers they don't know and talking to them at the same time with a headset. And those are very different, right? Like all of those scenarios are very different. And so if I think about, well, what are the skills that I would want my child to have before they could, let's go with the extreme, before they could play an online game where they will encounter strangers and be talking to them at the same time where I won't necessarily be able to hear everything everyone is saying. Okay. That's like a big ask, (laughs) right? Right? It's a huge ask. So for me, I'd be like, okay, I have to first know that you like know what appropriate online behavior is and isn't. And like, maybe they, maybe they've been introduced to that before. Maybe not. I have to know that my kid will come to me if something inappropriate goes on. I have to know that they're going to, you know, have kind of good sportsmanship skills, so to speak. 
in this online world where they aren't necessarily being monitored by someone. Or I have to be willing to be incredibly present, right? I have to be willing to be sitting there or in the room or listening the whole time to be willing to step in and say, okay, never mind. And then I have to also be okay with guns, <laughs> right? Like, I think some people think, oh, yeah, that game's violent. That's kind of like the last thing I'm even thinking about because I'm thinking about all the other layers of like social skills and big asks that we're putting on kids um, when they're encountering these things. So to me, it's kind of looking at the skills involved. So it's having a conversation around those skills. Right. And if the answer is no, maybe it's no because first I have to make sure that you can play a game online with friends and stick to appropriate language and appropriate way of talking to friends. So first, let's choose a game that we already are okay with. And you can play it online with your friends in the living room. Right. And then the focus is just on, we're focusing on the skills. We're focusing on how we talk to each other. We're focusing on appropriate language. And then maybe we say, okay, that went well. Okay. Now let's try, you know, maybe it's a different game. Maybe if you're okay with the content in Call of Duty, then it's okay. Now let's just try playing this game at all, like in story mode. And I'm just going to be sitting here and just kind of paying attention to what the story's like. I don't know this game. I want to get a sense of what it's like. And then if that's okay, then we, you know, we just increase the bar a little bit. But I think focusing on the skills is really important because ultimately we want our kids to have the skills to manage tech. We want them to have the skills to manage interpersonal relationships online. We want them to have the skills to recognize safe and unsafe behavior online. And that isn't age determined. Very true. I mean, because my son is very, very mature, but you know, just me not being very educated on that game at all. The, and just the violence factor was really my like, no, no, we're not doing that. But the, you bring up all that other stuff of online with strangers, who knows what they're saying, and, and not just, you know, it, it just the swearing and the other stuff that goes on, let alone, you know, other potentially inappropriate things. It was just like a hard no. I'm like, I'm not even ready to go there yet. But I didn't give a necessarily a good why which would be really important. Right. And sometimes the answer is no, and it's just no, right? Like, especially when I have my educator hat on. I mean, it's easier when you're the educator and not the parent. <laughs> but there's definitely times where I say, I like where I'm giving a no. And then ultimately I'm saying, I don't owe you a reason for this decision. And I get that that's like the last thing a kid wants to hear because you're essentially saying, because I said so. Right. Uh, but sometimes the answer is my answer is no for right now. I hear that that's not what you want. I'm going to get more information, right? Maybe it's, I don't know this game at all, right? So then maybe the answer is I need time to read about it. Like common sense media, great tool. If you are like, what? I was going to ask you about that. I love that tool. And that's usually where I go. Yeah. <laughs> common sense media is great. You can get an idea from parents and sometimes from kids and just sometimes read reviews to really get an idea of like, okay, what are they even going to encounter in this game? Figuring out whether or not there's like control settings within the game. Because sometimes games that can be played online, they don't have to be. Or sometimes you can limit it so they can only play with like friends, you know, people, people that they are friends with in the game, which you can then say, okay, this has to be people you really know in real life. Sometimes you can limit so that they they are, you know, not participating in audio chat. So all games have these different structures. So sometimes it might be just be saying, I need to research to figure out if this is something that can fit in with our family or not. Sometimes it's watching somebody play the game. 
figure out, okay, like, is, is this something I think is okay for us or not? So you posted a reel where you talked about is using screens, lazy parenting. Um, and you just had some really great points in there. So I'd love for you to share that with that post, that reel. Yeah, I think the fear around using screens uh, and sometimes an actual common like anti-screen point is that somehow it's like lazy parenting. I think that sometimes we hear like, oh, your kid shouldn't be on a screen. They should be outside. They should be playing with you. They should be, you know, oh, it's it's handing your handing your kid a screen is an easy way out. And the reframe I gave of that is that I actually think that that navigating the world of screens with kids is one of the hardest things that you can do if you're trying to do it in a really intentional way. I think it is in some ways a lot simpler, not easier, but simpler to have a firm line and and to kind of be abstinence only, so to speak. It's a lot simpler if you know that your answer will always be no. You know, if you're not going to allow screens, then you never have to think about it. And you know, every time your kid asks, the, the answer is no. And that doesn't mean it's going to be easy to necessarily hold boundaries around that. That's That can be complex, but it is simpler. Whereas, you know, we just spent 10 minutes talking about whether or not your kid should play Call of Duty at a certain age. Like, and we talked about just a little bit of all the things that can go into that decision. That is not simple. And being willing to think about, okay, I want screens to work for us as a whole family. And that means I need to be thinking about when should we have them? When can we have them predictably? For how long? How are they going to serve all of our needs, especially if I have multiple kids? How are we making sure it serves everybody's needs? Paying attention to, wow, that show really seem to amp up my kid. I think tomorrow we need to try something different. Paying attention to how it affects them, giving them strategies to help with regulating or coming down from from the excitement of a screen, being there to hold boundaries around behavior, keeping an ear out in case, you know, they are playing online with someone and listening for those behaviors. All of that involves a lot of parental involvement. So from the outside someone might see, "Oh yeah, that parent is on their phone." and their kid is on a screen. But the reality is, there's probably been a lot of decision making and monitoring and time and labor going into the decision to allow a screen, let alone how they're allowing a screen. And that parent is probably answering email or taking a break or corresponding with someone or doing something that needs to get done for them. Um, So from the outside, I think it can look, you know, quote, quote, unquote, easy or lazy. But the actual like when you get into what it requires to do that, I think it's anything but. Yeah, very true. And I think, you know, I love how you talked about how, like, this is our kids' world. Like they're growing up in this world. They need to know how to navigate it. So if if we don't teach them how to navigate it at home, they're going to go out into the world and just, you know, have a free-for-all. Uh-huh. <laughs> we had a interesting incident. Um, a couple weeks ago, my, my daughter met someone online, met a friend online, um, another child. And this that happened to live locally and invited my daughter to his soccer game. And when we got there and we sat down and the kids were talking to each other, the mom came over and wanted to have a conversation with me. And I was like, yeah, great. Let's talk about it. And she's like, she was all amped up because of how they met that they met online and her child was not supposed to be meeting people online. And, and she didn't know if I knew they met online and she didn't know if I understood the dangers of online and, 
you know, cause she's a social worker and I'm like, well, actually I'm a therapist by training. I have worked with children with trauma and sexual abuse and, um, you know, and sexual abuse is usually someone they know, not someone they don't know. Yeah. But my big thing was, you know, my daughter is growing up in this world and I want her to know how to vet people online. Mm-hmm. And obviously these two kids did an amazing job of vetting each other online. Her child invited my daughter to the soccer game, which was local families around um, a public park. Like, I think they just did a really great job of navigating it. So I just think this is something we need to teach our kids. It's a skill they need to have. This is the world today. I agree completely. And I really appreciate the lens that you bring in, particularly from the therapy aspect and working with children who may have gone through things that I think many parents worry would be like the worst case scenario of online behavior. And like, I was literally, you read my mind, because I was literally writing up captions for a future post and talking about how, you know, we fear online grooming and online predatory behavior, but really it's much more likely that's going to be someone they know in the real world. And again, it's not to say that it's not important to talk about those things. Of course, it's important to talk about those things. Right. But we are much more likely to talk about those things if we are viewing it as a skill, as opposed to this like amorphous, fearful, we can't allow you this thing because of this you know, scary possible outcome. Um, I make, a, I use the word abstinence a lot when I talk about screens and I, I think that might sometimes surprise people, but I try to make that compa- comparison really purposefully because abstinence only education very rarely works no matter what you're teaching abstinence about. You know, it doesn't matter what we're teaching about, but it, it tends not to work with vice. And in many ways, screens are advice. Food is often used as advice. Many things are used as advice. And when we when we talk about it only in this really like good, bad, black, white, delay, delay, delay kind of terms, what we really are doing is making it seem really special. And if we're the household, like you said, that is saying no, 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 eventually our kids are going to move out. And that will be the first time in their lives that they get to say yes to things that previously they were being said no to. And if they have already built up skills of, oh yeah, I already know, like I can play video games when I want. And I already know that I can play them, but I also probably have to study for my midterm. Then yeah, will they stretch those boundaries? Yeah, they probably will. Because most young adults tend to do that and tend to learn those lessons, we hope. But they're playing around and pushing the boundaries they already know, as opposed to going from complete abstinence to a sudden lack of boundaries. Freedom in the candy store. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And we are also not, you know, we're also basically asking our kids to magically come with boundaries when they become adults. And if we haven't put those in place as they're they're growing, then that's a really big ask to ask of of a young adult. Yes. Well, thank you so much. This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. I love your content. I would love for you to tell the audience where to find you, where to find your content, anything else you want to share. Thank you so much for having me. It was so great to talk to you. Um, I live mostly online in Instagram and my handle is the gamer educator and you can find me there talking all all things tech and screens and management and behavior and all that. All that lovely stuff. Great. Well, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with the world. I just think it's really, really needed. And it's a great perspective coming with a lot of scientific research and background and not just, you know, throwing stuff out there. So it's really awesome, really helps us disseminate that, which is really important. Thank you so much. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.